I'm Chris Banger Drowns. Thanks for listening. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Driving Forces coming up with Jeff Simmons. It is now 5 p.m. Stay tuned. Welcome to Driving Forces on WBAI. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and thank you for staying with us this afternoon. You were just listening now with Amy Goodman. I thank you so much for staying with us this afternoon. Thankfully, the weather is much better than it had been in previous days. A good portion of New Jersey, as well as big sections of New York City, are still uh, dealing with the loss of power as a result of, of the storm earlier this week. In fact, our first guest, who uh, will be on in just a few minutes, New York City Council Member Carlos Menchaca, also had uh, been dealing with a power outage in uh, in Brooklyn. So uh, a number of the people I've spoken with are have been dealing with that, and I see that the city was also making uh, ice available, dry ice available for a number of people who were dealing uh, with this issue. Lots going on in the news today. It's been incredible. The discussion, and this I've been fascinated by, uh, the discussion about how to reopen schools, how to have classes this fall in our city public school system is still a work in progress. There are still a lot of unknowns. And if you have not been following this, it seems New York City is still the, the largest big city school, public school district in the country that uh, is not at this point making the decision to just have remote learning. Uh, there are a number of options that are on the table. And some of the nonprofits that I talk with are, are worried about these because of the inability of parents to be able to not know how much time their kids will be in school or out of school, and that will affect whether they can't, how they're going to be able to do their jobs. Apparently, this Friday, tomorrow, that's the deadline for parents to choose what is called 100% remote learning, that their kids will learn outside of the school setting. But after August 7th, if a child isn't registered in that 100% remote learning model, something called blended learning is the default. It's it's uh, both options, part-time in school settings, part-time not in schools. One of the big unknowns what will happen with students who are without a home right now or who may be losing their permanent home because we're, what we're seeing because of the looming eviction crisis that's expected? A number of organizations I've talked with are now very worried about what the future will hold. Uh, you, if you've been listening to WBAI, you've heard the news reports each hour, so you have a good sense of what's going on with the pandemic and the economy. Just a, a, so briefly with the pandemic, the latest statistics. Now, this is as of uh, August 6th. So as of today, the number of people in New York uh, who have died after testing positive for the coronavirus. Here's the number. There were three deaths, rather, yesterday. As of yesterday, it's being reported today. And there were three, uh, let's see, there were three deaths yesterday and four deaths on the three preceding days. As far as the number of people who tested positive, 
uh, in the state. It's 418,000, almost 419,000, probably with the numbers, it's getting close to 419,000. There were 703 new positive tests just yesterday. As far as the economy, Every week I give you this update because the stats come out just before uh, a few hours before the show. As I've reported, the unemployment numbers are still incredibly steep. However, they were there were fewer new unemployment claims uh, for benefits last week than there had been in previous weeks. So nearly 1.2 million workers filed new claims for state unemployment benefits last week. That was the lowest weekly total since March, but it still signaled. It still signaled that there's continuing damage uh, inflicted by this pandemic on the labor market. Other news. I mentioned evictions. Governor Andrew Cuomo today, he's extending the eviction ban through September 4th, according to an executive order that he signed last night. But that supports the option to stay the eviction proceeding. So now it's up to the state courts for them to announce whether they'll follow the guidance. By today, it may be breaking for all we know during the show, but it's up to the state courts to make those decisions. Now, also, the mayor, the mayor today has pushed for additional action. He's saying there needs to be additional legislative action in Albany and rental assistance measures in the next federal coronavirus stimulus package. I'm just going to tell you one of the quotes. So many New Yorkers just can't pay the rent. If you don't get a paycheck, what are you going to do? How the hell are you going to pay the rent? That's according to the mayor. And I actually, before I get to my first guest, I spoke to someone yesterday for a nonprofit I work with who is trying to stave off eviction. And he's worked with a group called the Partnership for the Homeless, which contacted his landlord and was able to pay his his rent this month. But he still worries how long can this continue because he's lost one job. He lost overtime in another job. And he told me what he's worried about right now, he can pay his rent. But if he does, that means he can't put food on the table for his two kids and he can't pay for other things. He doesn't know how he's going to be able to pay for health insurance, for instance. So people are having to make those very difficult decisions right now amid the pandemic and with the uh, the eviction moratorium ending, If uh, depending on what the state courts do, if this ends – uh, people, more people are expected to be possibly out on the street. The other big question, schools. I mentioned that earlier. I'm going to ask the uh, first guest in a few moments just about his view on schools reopening and what he thinks should happen this fall. So the city, again, is the last holdout of in-person schooling of the big district. So much in the news today and Later in the show, I'll tell you what our attorney general did, which is a big decision, a big action that she took today. Uh, so stay with us for this hour because midway through the show, I want to give you an update on something that attorney general Tish James did, which is probably going to lead off many of the newspapers tomorrow. With that, let me get to the first guest, New York City Council member Carlos Menchaca. He represents District 38, and that includes Sunset Park, Red Hook, Greenwood Heights, portions of Borough Park, Diker Heights, and Windsor Terrace. During his tenure as a city council member, he's authored over 80 pieces of legislation, and of them, close to a third have been approved. And some of the recent pieces he introduced includes uh, include a proposal to promote workplace safety with apprenticeship training, uh, 
legislation to punish predatory landlords and also legislation to improve uh, street safety for cyclists and pedestrians. Very important this time when you think about uh, how uh, we are going to be commuting in this new environment. Just a little more. He's authored legislation for New York's first municipal identification card, the IDNYC card that many of us, including me, now have. And that serves over a million registrants in the city. He is also the chair of the Committee on Immigration, and we'll talk with him about that. He has supported innovative programs for immigrant day laborers, street vendors, and worker cooperatives. And lately, where he's been in the news has been his concern about gentrification in his district, and that's fueling his opposition to a major development in his district called Industry City. He joins us now on Driving Forces. Welcome, Councilman. Hey, Jeff. Buenas tardes. Good to be here with you. Thank you. So before I get to Industry City, I just wanted to talk with you briefly about the council's work overall during the pandemic and how you feel about the city's response. Uh, You know, it's felt like such a long haul here and the city and really I'm thinking about my constituents are still in crisis mode. Uh, so many people are feeling the, the the crunch of housing. You just mentioned housing before I got on. Um, but people are looking for food. Um, I represent the second largest public housing development um, that is still reeling from city. We are in the middle of a massive half a billion dollar construction site. And those residents are and not seeing the, the government's response fully to to sandy so we are still in crisis mode um and i think we need to do really is continue to use every opportunity that the council has uh to affect change now what what we failed to do was something in the budget and i think you you might have heard a little bit about the city council budget and how we negotiated with the mayor and i think that was just one of those moments where we could have met uh the the needs of our communities and and we decided to not do that not just because of the cowardly actions of the mayor, but because the council was, uh, I think, lacking their ability to connect to courage and instead connected to fear. Uh, we did not uh, cut funds from the NYPD to fund the things that we need in our communities that we're all hearing from, housing, health care, food. Uh, and that is where we are. We're still in the middle of a pandemic crisis mode. And I'm glad you touched on some of those issues because this is what I hear about every day, hunger insecurity, concern about being able to stay in in homes, and also uh, from parents, they're very worried about what this fall is going to look like for their kids, but then also for their ability to work if their kids might not be in schools. What are you hearing from your constituents, and what's your view on the mayor's, what the details that have been released so far from the mayor and the Department of Education about our schools? Well, for the first, um, I think the first reaction is confusion about what is actually happening in the fall. And, and I think that's, that's the worst thing that we can, we can give in terms of policy uh, and response to the, to the community. Uh, in Red Hook, for example, we have a weekly call where we're really thinking about how to uh, both bring in parents and teachers and educators and the acquisition of the school into conversations. And all things are really pointing to dramatic and, and transformational changes in the way that we are educating our young people. And I think people are really understanding that the old ways of, of education are, are just not going to be possible. 
so we were exploring things, I think, kind of citywide conversations, but walls, but outdoor space, streets, uh, and then really think about education in terms of how we can local in our communities to keep people safe. Uh, and really safety is at the forefront of everyone's comments. How am I going to be safe? And as teachers who are going to have to be forced to go back into school, um, they are not feeling confident that their safety is going to be held uh, and the safety of children are going to be held first and foremost. So the topic of the week and why I'm very happy that you're here on WBAI this afternoon, uh, frankly, in your district, it's a, a big concern among advocates and of, of uh, among uh, a number of people is the proposal for Industry City, the sprawling complex that once housed uh, heavy manufacturing, but now includes uh, retail and offices. But uh, this development has drawn significant opposition, including from you, and even pitted your, pit yourself against some of your fellow council members. First, for our listeners, talk a little about what this rezoning application would allow so they have a good sense of what Industry City is and would do. Thank you. And this is, this is a conversation I'm glad we're, we're having um, what I think is important is most don't really understand the details of the proposal, including some of my colleagues who are have decided to come in strong with some ideas. Um, they hear jobs and they salivate um, with automatic support. Um, but the zoning is where the devil is in the details. And so the multi-billion dollar corporation, Jamestown, they have a goal to bring Chelsea Market, you may have been there, and Hudson Yards style uh, development to Sunset Park to build high-end commercial complexes that really serve relatively wealthy visitors, uh, New Yorkers, but also tourists. And that's really high-end commercial complex work that they want to bring in. Um, And that's going to include office space and boutique retail, restaurants and bars. So my biggest concerns here uh, for the industry city proposal and the rezoning connected to that proposal is that it would allow them to build brand new luxury hotels and a million square feet of retail. Um, most of that is going to be big box. Um, and what uh, it does not require is manufacturing. And that's what that whole property on the waterfront is manufacturing waterfront. There's a big port there. We have two ports uh, in my district, one in Red Hook and one in Sunset Park. Uh, and what what we're trying to do is really institute protections for that industrial and manufacturing. What we saw during COVID, the real need for ecosystem that can build and produce. That's where we went. Park and Red Hook were were tapped to do things. And, a piece of property. And I, just want, and I just want to let our listeners know, Councilman, that you, uh, you're you calling from your cell phone, uh, and I know we have a, a choppy connection, so I just want to uh, mention that because you fade in and out occasionally, but I, I do hear what you're saying. Uh, you are also in one of the districts that did lose power uh, in the last few days, so I do appreciate you still oh, yeah. calling us, calling in today. Yeah, some some streets are out that no sense, and that's good. 
So thank you for, and I appreciate that. Um, and I'd love to come talk more about this if, if we were able to get the message out. So um, you're going in and out, but I do want to, if we can continue this, and if we lose the connection, we will have you back another time. Um, overall, I mean, and you mentioned Chelsea Market, and uh, I remember I started working uh, when I went to New, was at New York One. We had moved our offices to Chelsea Market, and I have watched over the years, and now I'm thinking I've been out of Chelsea Market for almost – 20 years, if I think about it, I've watched that evolution and how that changed the neighborhood and how just even the, the space itself had changed. What impact do you think Industry City will have on the surrounding neighborhood? This is what people call gentrification. Yeah, I think we may have lost you, Councilman. So uh, our guy, Reggie, is going to give you a call again. Reggie's going to give you a call again to bring you back in. So we're going to come back to the councilman in a few minutes if we can get him on the phone. But as we're, uh, as we're about to go to him, let me then tell you about that other news that I wanted to bring, uh, bring to your attention. Where is it? The big news from New York State Attorney General Tish James. This is what I was salivating to tell you about. She today filed a lawsuit seeking to dissolve the NRA, the National Rifle Association. That's the largest and most influential pro-gun organization in our country. Why did she do this? She's charging that the organization, she char is charging them with illegal conduct because of how they shifted millions of dollars away from the charitable mission of the organization to personal use by senior leaderships that it awarded contracts to the financial gain of close associates and family, and also appeared to dole out lucrative no-show contracts to former employees in order to buy their silence and continued loyalty. The suit specifically charges the NRA as a whole, in addition to Executive Vice President, I know you know his name, Wayne LaPierre, and others with failing to manage the NRA's funds and failing to follow numerous state and federal laws. That just happened today. So we've got Carlos Menchaca back on the phone. Thanks so much. Sorry about the connection. Let's just go back. Yeah, to no, industry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that is perfectly so okay. Yeah. These, these things happen. So you initially had said you'd support this proposal if a number of requests were met, but the requests for community benefits, they were characterized by some as unreasonable demands. What are the conditions you've been seeking and why? So Industry City, as I said, was a um, or is a proposal that's backed by multi-billion dollar global investors. Uh, this is something that has really caused a lot of issue for communities that want to keep a multi-billion dollar corporation accountable. And so the, the conditions that I set, while they feel unreasonable to a multi-billion dollar corporation, what, what communities have been asking for across the entire city and keeping, keeping a corporation accountable. And so it wasn't just changes to the application that have yet to, to happen. It's also investments and protections from the city and also a community benefits agreement. And I think we've all seen the failures of community benefits agreement, but what I'm really asking for is a kind of civic challenge to build something from a community to keep uh, a corporation like this through a legally binding agreement accountable so that when I leave, the mayor leaves, everyone else leaves, the community can hold everyone accountable for the investments that they have been asking for uh, for a generation. 
And so if that seems unreasonable, I think that's that's part of the problem here. Uh, and I saw very, very early on that this was going to be um, something that was not going to materialize. And so I made the decision, especially now during COVID, it's almost, um, I think, impossible for us to move forward with anything that they have um, on the table and to really start from scratch, look at the community who has been visioning what they want for, for this neighborhood and support the vision of the neighborhood. So uh, earlier this week, and you touched on this in the beginning, uh, two of your fellow council members who also are going to be leaving their uh, current positions uh, in, in the near future for them, uh, they published a column in the New York Daily News in which they backed the project, saying it's a glimmer of hope in a moment of despair. Why do you think they took this action, and have you talked with them since then? Uh, I've, I've texted them. Uh, I got a response from one of them and, uh, we're trying to set some time to really go through, uh, already initially they have had, um, um, misinformation. And so we all, I want to make sure that they have the, the best information, but what you're referring to there is something called member deference. Uh, member deference is what happens in land use where you have members who make decisions, um, on, behalf of their communities on land use and that all the members really follow the lead of the community, uh, uh, the council member. Um, and so, so what, what they, what they're breaking with right now is, is member deference. And what we're really, what, what's happening here is the deference to the major developers that are really asking for support. Um, and so what we're trying to do really is ensure that we base our community decisions on the work that the community has done. And so they're really not confronting me. They're confronting a generation of work that our community has done around industry city and the whole work and waterfront. Uh, and, and I think that's what I find troubling for a representative of a district that, um, that somehow confronts a community head on like this, um, I think is not only dangerous, it's anti-democratic and, uh, we need not, not, we, we need to put a stop to it. Um, but really invite people to learn more about what we're trying to do here so that they can support the community. So before I get to the next topic, where does this stand now? What are the next steps? Well, again, member deference has been the way through, um, and I, I really doubt that the Speaker of the City Council, uh, Corey Johnson, is going to allow for, for this to happen. He already had a very bruising uh, political moment with the with the budget, uh, and this would be, I think, um, yet another uh, politically uh, wrong move. But what I what I do want to do is is allow for us to learn because this is not the end. Uh, you know, the end of the industry industry city proposal is not the end of the work. It's really, in a lot of ways, the beginning of ushering in a whole new way of bringing equity to development in communities like Sunset Park, where we have essential workers and immigrants working every day uh, and need the support and they're not getting it from the federal government. Uh, we're struggling to give it to them in the city. Uh, and that's what we need to bring core and center as we move forward for the next chapter of the city of New York. I mentioned in introducing you that you chair the immigration committee uh, this year. We've seen, uh, well, not even just this year, we've seen a number of efforts by the uh, Trump administration to uh, oh, yeah. uh, change 
I'm being diplomatic and saying change the lives of immigrants in our country. And and right now we're also seeing at the same time black and brown communities, including immigrants, hardest hit by this pandemic. Considering this and your chairmanship, what are some of the measures you want to see the council take on in the next session to address some of these inequities? Well, we already have a couple bills that need to get passed, and that's the street vendor bill. So that's where I think we can put a lot of energy and time to expand the ability for street vendors to vend. This is one of the safest ways that we are seeing um, economy grow. Street vendors are on our streets. They're, they're part of our history, and we can give relief to them by expanding their permits. That's, that's job number one. Two, we need to push for the state to tax billionaires to really fund essential worker programs and needs. Uh, it's something that uh, our our uh, colleagues in the state are, are really struggling with the governor, and I think the council needs to come in strong with the voice uh, of the city to push for. Um, and I think the, the last pieces are really about recovery um, for undocumented immigrants. This is These are the most vulnerable people in our communities. And when I think about what government is here to do, it's here to support the most vulnerable people in our communities. And they're not just vulnerable. They're also the engine of our economy. They're essential workers. Um, There's so many, um, so many families right now that are going hungry. Those are, the, those are the places that we need to focus on. We have a lot of great ideas in the council. Um, and I think that if we are going to have a robust economy, uh, strong and safe communities, we have to make sure that we have immigrants at the table. And we were talking about education. Um, earlier, I think that the education question has to bring in immigrant communities as well, or else we'll fail with the execution of whatever is going to happen in the fall. So this is where my role as the immigration chair, uh, I bring in those voices to ensure that whenever decisions are made, that we keep the immigrant community uh, uh, in the conversation, helping us make decisions. So there was a, uh, a rather large uh, op-ed in today's New York Times uh, about an incomplete census hurting everyone. And this past weekend, you and State Senator yeah. Zellner Myrie took part in a march through Brooklyn to raise awareness about the census and racial justice. We've not been seeing great numbers here in New York City. Talk a little about why you think that is and what needs to be done to, at least in New York City, to get a better count. Well, I know that we're all thinking about COVID and what it's done to all of us, our psyches, and and the the focus is on food and jobs and rent. You started this program focused on that, and I think that's that's part of it. But the, I think that the real issue here is there. Um, anyone who has not filled out the, fem- uh, the census, and by the way, if you're listening to this now and you haven't filled out the census, my2020census.gov, fill it out, 10 minutes, very simple because it's connected to resources. All the things that we're talking about right now in terms of the gaps can be filled if, if a complete count happens, uh, and that's on resources. But it's also about political power. We could lose congressional support. Those are all important for us as we fight for the resources that we deserve and the real kind of political power. Um, but it all comes down to relationships. And I think that we are struggling right now as the federal government and its racist leader right now in the White House confronts us and that the state and and city, I think, have had a, a, a real hard time uh, connecting to those that feel invisible and disconnected from government. Uh, and that's why I'm thinking about 
Sunset Park right now. Uh, Sunset Park is one of the lowest uh, is one of the lowest in census tracts, but it was also one of the highest COVID impacted communities. So if government can begin to refocus its energy on communities like mine, which is why this is this industry city question is so important and regain its trust. I think we're going to be able to have better census numbers and ultimate participatory democracy for the future of the city. And we've got just about a minute left. And as much as I'd love to keep you on longer, I know I have another guest coming up, but I try to ask a lot of guests this because, well, we talk about policy and we talk about programs. The pandemic really has affected people in so many different ways. And on a very personal level, many people have lost loved ones, lost their jobs. How have you been personally impacted by the pandemic? Oh, Jeff, it's changed everything for me. Um, I'm I'm thinking about myself as uh, uh, an openly gay legislator living in Brooklyn on a waterfront. Um, I'm everything has become incredibly localized. I, I I'm in my neighborhood um, uh, in it and walking through it in a different way, talking to folks that uh, were transient are now localized. I think that for me, um, this is all about the the connection to our neighborhoods and what we want as neighborhoods when we think about the education crisis or the immigration crisis or uh, or gentrification uh, I think all of us are are um, in a different place and so um, for me it's changed it's changed the way that I'm thinking about the city and what it needs to be in the future if we're going to co- you know combat covid uh, the multiple waves that may or may not be coming and and really the the future of the and the question around equity and and we're just seeing it different life has gotten a lot more more localized and and i think this is good and i feel i feel good and i I don't i don't know if i can say this right now but um i'm really excited about 2021 and the council candidates that are watching us do the work in the city council and that is where i'm feeling the most hope right now because they're watching us uh, in many ways fail and i can't wait to support uh, their transformational energy as they come in to the city council and help them execute that vision that the communities are really asking for. And I, and I know I'm going over, so but really quickly, I remember after 9-11, I was a reporter back on uh, 9-11 and covered this for New York One. And in the six months after, I really started to question what I want yeah. to do next. Uh, so when you think about what we're going through right now, has it made you consider you know, what you, what the next step is for you, what you want to do next, what the next chapter of your career is. I think that my next chapter is going to be helping the next city council execute their vision. Um, as I, as I hear it and I see it right now, that that's going to be my work. Um, I, I care deeply about the institution that, that I'm about to leave and I want to ensure that they have everything they need. Uh, and, and essentially, that future chapter has started now. Um, if you're a candidate out there, you want to talk to me about about what is happening to the city council and want to support some of the stuff we're doing, let's talk. Let's organize. Um, it, it begins now. Thanks, Jeff. And, and that leads me to then the final question. If they do want to reach out to you, if people want to know more about your work, where should they go? Uh, my council website is is my government website. It has all the stuff that I talked about with Industry City, um, all the presentations, so they can they can go on there and send me an email or on my social media uh, at Simenchaka 
is my Twitter and at Menchaca is my Instagram. Pretty available. Uh, let's talk. Thank you. City Council Member Carlos Menchaca, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. You've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I just wrapped up a conversation with New York City Council Member Carlos Menchaca. We talked about his chairmanship on the Immigration Committee and also his concerns about the Industry City Project uh, in Sunset Park, as well as other issues that are facing us right now, including the census. And I'm glad he talked about the census because... um, this is an important issue. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. There's significant concern about the the participation here in our city. Just the number. Uh, let's see. As of last week, here's the number. Over 53% of New York City households responded to the census. Only just over 50%. Only just over half. That means, in the end, the city could lose billions of dollars for critical programs and political representation in Congress and in Albany. So to just reassert what the council member said, fill out the census. It does not take long. I did this within, what, five, ten minutes. It does not take long at all. It's important to do that. If you haven't gotten a chance, please fill out this census. It's incredibly important. So I want to tell you about one other thing and then get to my guests because it's going to lead in uh, to the next guest. Next week, and Reggie, uh, you know, I was going to talk with you about this because uh, uh, you might, being from Brooklyn, might know much more about this history as well. But this is something I focused on on WBAI last year. Next week, there's a documentary uh, that I'd like to tell you about. It's appearing on HBO. It's next Wednesday at 9 o'clock. It's called Yusuf Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn. I encourage you to tune in to see this because coming up, on Sunday the 16th, I'm going to have one of the producers on City Watch to talk about this. As some of our more dedicated listeners probably recall, last summer I spoke with Mayor David Dinkins about this and others about the story of Yusef. He was the black teenager who was murdered back in 1989 by a group of young white men in Bensonhurst. And after that, we saw racial tension and civil rights activism explode in the city. And that dis- exposed mm. deep prejudices and inequities which continue to plague our country and, in large part, our city today. Think about the protests we've seen in the last few months. Think about the other movements across this country that have led to significant change. The civil rights movement, the women's movement, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. These are just a few of the the movements uh, that I've been reading about in the last few days in a new book called The Future of Change, How Technology Shapes Social Revolutions. It's out by Cornell University Press. And joining me now to talk about the book is Ray Brescia. Now, let me just tell you briefly about Ray, and then I'm going to bring him on. Ray is a professor of law at Albany Law School, previously was the associate director of the Urban Justice Center, who I had the privilege of working with as a a PR consultant a few years ago. Uh, While he was at the Urban Justice Center, he coordinated legal representation for community-based institutions in areas like housing, economic justice, workers' rights, civil rights, and environmental justice. Ray Brescia, welcome to WBAI. Hi, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. I purposely did not go deeply into your bio because I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little more about your previous work in the communities in New York City. Uh, sure. Well, that's that's kind of you to ask, uh, and, it, and it certainly... 
informs my book. Um, so I started out uh, in the early 90s as a lawyer for the Legal Aid Society of New York, mostly representing tenant associations in Upper Manhattan, so uh, Harlem and Washington Heights. Um, and from there, uh, expanded a bit when I joined the Urban Justice Center uh, to work with groups across the city doing housing work and uh, environmental justice work, as you said, and workers' rights work uh, from, uh, you know, Bushwick to uh, to the Bronx. Uh, so I, I, I have had a, a, you know, a degree of experience working with very local, very grassroots groups like uh, tenant associations and worker centers. And uh, that really informs the book, um, which uh, is is a, a little different take, but it definitely uh, brings in those experiences because in the book I I try and sort of chart out the uh, the history of some of our most successful social movements over uh, uh, the, you know the several centuries of the American experience and uh, show how they've worked with uh, technology and I think interesting and compelling ways and then I try to say what um, the new technologies of today can do for social movements. So I'm, I'm glad you went there because uh, you mentioned early in the book, and this is how it's structured, which is fantastic, the way you break them up into these three categories. You mentioned the three interrelated factors that are common to successful movements, describing what can make a, mo a social movement successful, medium, network, and message. Talk, Walk me through each one, starting with medium. What is the medium and why is this one of the three key ingredients? So the medium really is the whatever the the means of communication is that the group uh, works with. And what I try to show in the book is that at least up until the civil rights movement of the 60s, or, you know, 50s and 60s, um, groups used the most, uh, the, the sort of the most current, the innovative means of communication uh, to advance their cause. So, so that, that's the first part. It's the medium. And I start out, you know, really during colonial times with the printing press and then move forward all the way to the ways in which the civil rights movement used the television really uh, powerfully. So, so we can go through those different, the, the different advances in communication, but so that's the, that's the medium piece of it. But two other pieces that I found to be common in some of our most successful social movements over American history was that they uh, built a network of grassroots groups, local groups that were connected to, uh, you know, regional, state-based, often a national network. So it was what I call, and, and, and others call, a translocal network, that it's, it's got these individual nodes, these little, you know, these uh, places where people can meet and face-to-face, -face, like a tennis association, like a, a, a worker center, like a union hall, um, but then that's connected to, uh, you know, a, like a, a state group and then a national group. So the second piece of these successful social movements uh, was the network. So you've got medium, network, and then finally, the last piece is a, a positive and inclusive message that 
really built on people's shared humanity and their shared destiny. So, uh, so those, those are three essential components to what these social movements that I trace that all seem to have emerged with a new means of communication, that when they did that, when they, when they, when they embraced that new means of communication and, and sort of bent it to their will, they, they used it to, to build a network and then they, they utilized it to promote a, a broad-based and inclusive message, more often than not, they succeeded. And I, and I can go into individual examples, but those are, those are the, the components, the three components that, that I found in looking at you know, some of the most successful social movements in American history. And I'm glad you just said that because my next question was about one of the examples that there's a, a, an incredibly detailed chapter that was just fascinating to me where you talk about the violent, Violence Against Women Act. Can you talk about how each of these factors played a role in that being successful? Sure. So so I do uh, thank you for, for mentioning that example. So what I try to do after these historical uh, 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 cases, these historical case studies. I then do uh, case studies of four contemporary movements that I argue are and have, you are using and have used these three components successfully in the current, you know, technology infused. Uh, uh, mobilizing and organizing um, moment that we're in. Um, and, and the campaign to extend the Violence Against Women Act uh, in, in the 2012-2013 period is, is what I focus on in one of the chapters as an example of a contemporary movement. Now, if, if, if your uh, listeners don't know, the Violence Against Women Act was passed in 1994, uh, you know, uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden was one of the main authors of that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it explicitly has to be reauthorized every five years. And um, because of that, you know, the, the, the Congress has got to come together and, and, and vote it up for another five years, uh, every, every five years. And uh, usually from 1994 on, it was a fairly pedestrian, bipartisan affair. I mean, who could, you know, be for violence against women, right? Uh, so that's what the uh, what usually happened. But then in sort of 2011, 2012, when the, the law came up for renewal, it became a political football. And it became uh, a, a, an opportunity for, uh, you, know, uh, you know, people on the right to oppose the extension, uh, but then people on the left to seek an expansion of the Violence Against Women Act to cover uh, things like expand protections for the LGBTQ community, for, uh, you know, for, for uh, Native women. So uh, it became sort of caught up in, in a battle um, uh, over, you know, this is we had a presidential election coming up. We had uh, fierce fights in the Senate, um, in, and the Senate was was in play in in that election, um, and so it it became it became this big political football. But the advocates who were pushing for an expansion 
Um, not just an extension, but an expansion. They, they determine, you know, it's time to ensure that that uh, it, it it covers uh, lesbian, lesbian, gay community and transgender community. Make sure that there are protections for Native women. Make sure that there are enough protections for immigrant women who are uh, the victims of their abusers, and their abusers are holding their uh, their immigration status over them. So it, the, the the group, you know, a, a, a national network exists to sort of promote extension and expansion of the Violence Against Women Act. And they they took an inclusive approach to it. They they invited uh, representatives from other groups who could who could speak for these uh, these additional interests that I talked about and could, um, you know, promote a more inclusive message. And, and one of the messages that they uh, that they they promoted was that we're not just going to talk about violence against women. We're going to talk about intimate partner violence. Uh, because it's a more inclusive term, uh, we're going to we're going to ensure that uh, there are protections for immigrant women. We're going to start talking about intimate partner violence and not just talk about violence against women or domestic violence and talk about survivors of intimate partner violence. So they 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 built a network. They used all the um, uh, the, the, the technologies available at the time, Twitter and Facebook and uh, you know, uh, uh, conference calls. We didn't. We weren't quite a, a Zoom nation yet, um, and they they stuck together um, and they 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 fought in Congress for a strengthened and expanded VAWA, and they did that because they had an inclusive message because they kept their coalition together, and they were pitted against each other. You know. Uh, Republicans in Congress tried to, you know, say, oh, we'll give this group some benefits. But if you're going to do that, you've got to give up your demands over here for this other group. And the the group stuck together. The, this network stuck together and got an expanded and strengthened Violence Against Women Act. Now, unfortunately, that that period has has lapsed again and we're fighting to renew it yet again. Um but, uh, you know, that that's a contemporary example of a movement that utilizes those three components I talked about before. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, because one of the things that really stood out from that chapter in the book, too, was how they the network, how they kept in constant communication with each other so that as Republicans tried to peel them off and say, we'll do this for you if you give this up. They were in communication with each other so that they could tell when. Uh, electeds were trying to tear them apart. Uh, so I want to just go to 2020 uh, because we got about five, six minutes left. And I think the, the world we live in today, it's funny as I read the book and you talk about social distance, it so has a new meaning to me this year because a lot of these successes happen through a social distance, you know, uh, a level of social distance between people. But now that's kind of got a different meaning this year when we have to be apart. So look at 2020 and even like the calls for rent strikes right now and that movement. What are what are you seeing right now that uh, as far as the movements in, tw in 2020 that uh, speaks to what will be successful? Yeah, so let me use, let me unpack that term social distance a little bit. The way that yeah. I use it in the book is the way is the way sociologists talk about it, which is the 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 it's another way to think of it is the differences that people perceive between each other. 
you know, uh, you know, uh, whether it's based on race or ethnicity or gender or whatever it is, that's that difference is the term sociologists use to describe social distance. We've now, that term has now been used in <laughs> epidemiology, right? Uh, and it, and it, we're really talking about physical distance, right? But the way that it's been talked about is social distance. So uh, what I, the way I use the term in the book is to talk about that, the, the, the differences that we can perceive about each other. And what I try to argue is that by by lowering those differences and seeing that we share a humanity, seeing that our destiny is, is, is entwined is the way that networks are made stronger, networks are made bigger, messages are more inclusive, like with uh, the message of the VAWA reauthorization. So, so today, I think that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is a, is a terrific example of the ways that technology has really sort of supercharged the issue of police violence against the African-American community. I don't think anyone believes that we're seeing an epidemic of of police violence against the African-American community simply because, or, or that this is new. The difference today is now it's being filmed because people have cell phones in their pockets and we can see the 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 murder of George Floyd right like we can see this happen in real time and that's what's changed and that's what's really opened people's eyes you know we we lost John Lewis you know just a few weeks ago and you know they the civil rights movement knew about the power of the television uh, whether it's in Birmingham or in Selma on the Edmund Pettus Bridge they knew about the, the, the power that those images had in Birmingham of you know, police dogs attacking teenagers, of on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, of you know, being assaulted by state troopers. Those images were beamed into people's living rooms, and it really changed hearts and minds. And we're seeing the same thing happening. Back then, they had to rely on three networks, right, to get the message out. And if they didn't get on a network, the story wasn't going to be told. Now we've got the incredible power of social media that can get these messages out there and that can tie people together and to, to build that empathy, to, to, you know, to build that, that, that solidarity and to see that you know our our futures are entwined and we we share a common destiny and it's only by recognizing that common destiny and embracing those sorts of messages that we can build the coalitions that are necessary to bring about change as we've always done in american history and I've got just about a minute or so left. I'm going to uh, give you a uh, repeat one of the quotes from the book that's so important right now. We stand at a time in history when the ability to communicate and collaborate has never been stronger. So as we wrap up, where do we go next? What's next? Well, I think that we need to defend democracy. I think we need to defend the rule of law and we need to you know, understand that the future of the nation as we know it um, is really at risk. Uh, and if we want 
uh, a nation that uh, upholds its highest ideals and continues to be what you know Ronald Reagan said was a shining city on a hill. We are not a shining city on a hill right now, and uh, we need to do that. Um, we we need to you know get back to some of those basic principles of human rights and decency and civility um, and, uh, and, and defend, uh, you know, a democracy. John Lewis in his, to speak to uh, John Lewis again, you know, democracy isn't a thing, it's an act. Um, and we need to act like uh, we understand that. So Ray Brescia, as I wrap up, where can people go to learn more about you and the future of change, how technology shapes social revolutions? Oh, thank you. Uh, well, on the Albany Law website, you can go to the faculty directory and see about, you know, this book and other things I've written on these topics. And certainly, um, you know, the, the book is available wherever wherever books are sold. Uh, and I, uh, I thank you for the opportunity to speak tonight. Rebrecha, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. So stay with us this evening. But before I wrap up the show, I just want to remind our listeners, as soon as I, I finish this, that's when I try to take a, a walk outside on one of the open streets. And I make sure that I'm sporting my WBAI face mask as much as possible uh, to show my pride in WBAI and keep healthy and safe at the same time. If you would like a WBAI mask, you can just make a donation to us. It would be wonderful if you could do that. For $35, you can get a WBAI face mask. Make sure you ask for one when you do this because that's what I did. I wanted to get two of them. So I, while one's being washed, I'm wearing the other one. Here's what you can do by, and you support WBAI in doing this. Call the number 516-620. 3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. You can also just log on to our website. Go to give to, that is the number two, give to wbai.org, give to wbai.org. Or if you're walking around right now and you just feel like texting, that's the way to go. Text WBAI to 41444 and you will get some prompts and they'll walk you right through it. You can give any amount really, but for $35, you can get a WBAI face mask or you can do what I also do. I'm a WBAI buddy and that means I just give a recurring donation every single month to continue to support our non-corporate, non-commercial, awesome radio station that's been around for 60 years. I want to thank my guests today, New York City Council Member Carlos Menchaca, and who you just heard from, Ray Brescia, author of The Future of Change by Cornell University Press. Next week, I'm off. The show is going to be off next week, but please make a point of tuning in this Sunday at 10 a.m. to hear my City Watch co-host, David Brand, speak with New York State Senator Jessica Ramos and attorney and Queens election lawyer, who has very good insight on absentee ballots and that process, Ali Najmi. And if you missed any part of the show, you can visit us at WBAI.org. Just go to Programs and then Archives. The show is going to be up in about 10 minutes Again, I want to thank you for tuning into WBAI today and staying with us during this pandemic. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and in the coming weeks. Thank you and have a good day.
Hello, I'm Michael D.D. White, member of the Local Station Board. The next meeting of the Local Station Board will be Wednesday, August 12th at 7 p.m. Because of coronavirus precautions and restrictions, the meeting will be a remote access meeting, which will be accessible to the public. It will include an opportunity for public comment. Topics the LSB has been and might be discussing include promotional items WBAI can offer to contributors and scheduling fundraising efforts integrated into the program grid. Again, that's Wednesday, August 12th at 7 p.m. The meeting, held through the Zoom remote meeting service, can be accessed by calling in the U.S. 929-205-6099 and entering the meeting ID 917-757-6542. The telephone number to call is 929-205-609 and the meeting ID is 917-757-6542. A link to instructions, including for listening over the web and how to submit written comments, will be available through WBAI's main webpage. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to access this meeting? No, but why not? Once every 10 years, America mounts a census and attempts to count every single person living in the country, citizens and non-citizens, immigrants, documented and undocumented alike. This is an extremely difficult goal, even under ideal circumstances. And even as the actions of the current U.S. government has created fear and uncertainty that all but ensures that many immigrants will stay in the shadows, too terrified to risk contact with any governmental official, census takers included. However, by law, namely Title 13 of the U.S. Code, the Census Bureau cannot release any information about you, your business, or your immigration status to law enforcement. So step out of the shadows, stand up and be counted. This is a public service of WBAI Community Outreach. My name is Harvey Epstein. I represent the 74th Assembly District, but I'm here as a listener who cares deeply about BAI. If we talk about social justice movements in New York, you can't have the conversation without BAI. BAI has been a part of every fabric, of every movement, whether we're talking about police reform, criminal justice work, housing movement. Everyone relies on BAI as a source of information, a source of opportunity, a source to move the movement forward. Please call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. Go to the website, give2wbai.org, and subscribe. Become a listener sponsor. Become a buddy, a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for 10 or $20 a month or more. Or if you are a donor who has given us $100, think about giving us $200. Think about giving WBAI $500, whatever you can afford. In the name of your favorite program here, over listener-sponsored, locally grown, locally controlled, WBAI New York. And thank you so much. This is WBAI New York. And the previous program was Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons. And that is heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. 
Um, stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News uh, coming up in at 6 p.m., followed by uh, Justice Matters with Bob Ganji at 6.30 p.m. And if you appreciate any of those programs and what they bring to the table, please consider becoming a financial supporter to this radio station by calling 516-620-3602. 516-620-3602.